1: I miss you, man. I miss you, man. I miss you, Cam.
2: I miss you too.
1: That was worth it. Classic. I
0: miss you. I miss you, man. Do I miss you? I miss you, man. I miss you. I miss you, man. Do I
1: miss you? Hello, welcome to I miss you, man. My name's Lonnie. I'm here with my friend Dylan. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm all right, Lonnie. How you going, mate? I'm not too bad. Dylan, what's That's this good. show normally about? Well, normally, Lonnie,
3: it's just uh, just you and me most of the time. Mm. Um, you know, just two mates, just two buds, you know. <laughs> We've got a podcast together, and uh, it's about us keeping in touch pretty much. And uh, every week, we take each other through a topic, that could be anything. Life, pop culture, everything in between. Um... But usually, well, not usually. Sometimes, on the odd occasion, if we if we feel they're worthy enough, we have a guest on,
1: and that's what happened this week, hasn't it? We've actually missed Cameron Williams. How are you doing, Cameron?
2: Good morning, uh, and thank you so much for helping me spread the word previously on a previous episode about House Hunters. <laughs> that's right. Um, I think we really <laughs> shot that show up into the stratosphere in terms of its 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 awareness and popularity. So. Um, now we've done that, I'm hoping we can do the same with U2. Uh,
1: okay, a little band called U2. We'll try and see if we can get them some more followers, eh?
2: <laughs> they need, yeah, they need uh, they need this. They really need <laughs> the support uh, from people all around the world. So if, yeah, we can get more people to kind of listen to them and, and buy their albums, I'm sure um, they'll be very grateful for it because they really need it right mm, now.
1: That's right.
3: Yeah, so they can feed their family. So Bono's struggling a bit, Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, before we get there, Cameron, I, I see you were on ABC Radio in Melbourne recently talking about um, Indiana Jones 5. Oh. How does that compare to being on I Miss You Man?
2: Uh, you know what, it's, it pales it pales in comparison um, because I'm always lobbying the ABC to let me talk about things like House Hunters and U2, but they don't let me. They come back and say, can you talk about Indiana Jones? And I'm like, that's like the 26th thing I'm interested in at the moment, but um, yes, I will come on. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not as great as, as doing this show um, in terms of the topics we can discuss. Yeah, but we don't have much standards here. We just, whatever you want talk to talk about Cameron, up to you. <laughs> um,
1: and this one actually came from you. you. You messaged me during the week. You're like, I need to talk about this. U2. <laughs> yeah, you two.
2: Yeah. give us some
1: background? What, what's, what's going on?
2: Well, you know, this is, what, this is what happens to me every now and then. I'll be working, I'll be doing something and I've got music on in the background. And every now and then I'll put on a U2 album because I'm a huge fan of U2. And, you know, sometimes you see some of their more popular albums that have the hits on them, but then I always gravitate towards Songs of Innocence, which is the notorious free U2 album um, that was kind of caught up in that controversy when um, Apple put it on everyone's iPhone um, and in their (laughs) iTunes accounts. Um, But every time I listen to it, I am just blown away by how great it is as an album. And I'll always, like, shoot out a tweet or, like, just put something on social media saying, just want to confirm to everyone that the free U2 album is still very good. Um, and that usually will, everyone will just come out and just say no. Um, and that's it. Usually it's just N O full stop. Um, and so when, when I was chatting to you guys previously and, you know, saying, you know, we'd love to talk about different topics on this show that people are really passionate about, I was like, well, House Hunters tick. I was like, next would be <laughs> U2, specifically the free U2 album um, because I think everyone kind of has an opinion about it because it was forced upon them in such a bizarre <laughs> way that you, everyone kind of remembers that moment when it was like, oh, wow, like this is something that they did. and um, But I actually do truly believe that, aside from all the controversy around it that it is a legit great album um and i think more people need to kind of revisit it away from the controversy
1: okay well you know on this show we, when we bring guests in we try and talk about something they're passionate about try and share the passion and so that's a good topic for you to pick today um before we get stuck into the meat and bones of it dylan maybe you and i could talk about what we think about you two what's that background of you two just so we can set up sort of each side of the argument here.
3: All right. Let me first say this. Uh, music is subjective, you know. Uh, people, people have different tastes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you too. I, uh, you know, their music doesn't really catch me. Um, I mostly remember them for, you know, being on The Simpsons and uh, on South Park as well. It's one of my favourite episodes where Bono is just a giant piece of shit, literally. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, I haven't really dived into their music over the years. I've probably only heard their greatest hits. Definitely hadn't listened to this album for this podcast. So I don't know if I'll thank you for that, Cameron. We'll see.
1: <laughs> well, I'm kind of on more on your side of things, Dylan. I'm probably somewhere between don't mind and ambivalent about you 2 um, I like the you know, the big three or four major hits like everyone does and everyone should. And I think, you know, they should probably give more props of being activists and, you know, the charity work as well as being, you know, good pop stars. But I just don't drive with their music overall. Um, I'm guessing you're very different to us, Cameron. What's your U2 story?
2: Oh. My YouTube, my YouTube story is really weird because it involves Batman. Um, Ooh, so right. when when I was in high school, like I just started high school, um, Batman Forever came out, and it was like a really big deal because I think Batman Returns was like the first one of those movies where I was kind of aware of it coming out. And it was like a thing and it was like, you know, begging your parents to kind of take you to see it in the cinema. And then when Batman Forever came out, I was a bit older. So I was like, I could have a bit more control over like, oh, I am definitely seeing this. Like, I need, you need to take me. I'm going like, you know, this is like a really big event. I can remember all the merchandising, like everything like to do with it. Oh yeah. Um, and one of the big things was that there was a U2 song attached to it. Um, Hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me. Um it was that and Seal's Kiss from a Rose, which I <laughs> both bought as a CD single and had. And it was kind of during that period of time where you kind of started to curate your own music collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had both of those on CD singles and I'm a strong Batman Forever defender as well. <gasps> so you can see that my taste is just all over the place at the moment. No, no,
3: my man. I
2: love Batman Forever as well. I'm with you. Bat- 100%. Yeah, Bat- Batman Forever is great and um so that's kind of where it started and then so that was when i was that was when i kind of was like proactively purchasing u2 music and then obviously yeah greatest hits hearing it on the radio um and then just being aware of those songs but then yeah as i got a bit older i just started getting more into their like listening to their albums and trying to get it in my head around kind of like the career progression because people have kind of said you know Know this is when they were great and they're kind of not as good anymore, and you know, this is why this album is so important, and all these kind of things. So, you're trying to get your head around the history of the band. And then I think it was, I can't remember what year this was, but I remember there was like a period of time where I was like, I just want to see all of my all time favorite bands like live in concert. Like, so I'd always just be keeping tabs on like who was touring, who was coming to Australia when, and I went and saw you two live, it was in Sydney, it was during their three sixty tour where they had this like giant kind of it was kinda of looks like a giant crab. It was like a giant kind of like this huge kind of arch that goes over the stage and they kinda of play in stadiums in this huge kind of like setup. Um, and so I went and saw them live and, and oddly the support act was Jay-Z. So it was Jay-Z opening for U2 um, in this giant stadium setting. And I remember seeing them live and it just like, and then everything just kind of clicked when I saw them. Um, and they even played um, Hold Me, Through" and "We Kiss Me, Kill Me as the encore. And it was like, incredible because like they lit up the stage all green and they played like grabs from the movie and like it was just it was everything you would have wanted and like they had this microphone this kind of old school kind of microphone drop down from the top of the um the structure and it's kind of shaped like a circle and Bono like kind of like runs around the stage like swinging on it and it just like it was like perfect for the song Um, and so and then after that I just got way 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 more into them and just kept going back through all their albums listening all the way through and I think that's around the time when Songs of Innocence hit and during that period of time yeah there was a real kind of backlash to them as a band So I think that's what then emboldened me to love them more because I was kind of like, everyone's just railing on them. And I think whenever that happens, you just always kind of like go into defensive mode and you're like, no, this is good. Um, And then it took me a while to actually kind of get my head around all of that. Um, But then I actually saw them in 2019. At the end of 2019, they came back to Australia and I saw them again for their Joshua Tree um, anniversary tour. Which was amazing, and that was kind of the last time I was in like a big, huge space with like hundreds and thousands of people. So um, that was like that. That was a great memory already, but now it's even stronger because it was kind of like it's now this like relic of like the old times, which is really bizarre. So um, that is pretty much my my U two history. So it goes all the way from Batman Forever to pre uh, pre pandemic state as pre pandemic stadium show. Yeah,
1: that's a pretty. Pretty hectic life you've had there, (laughs) (laughs)
2: Gavin. I also have to have. I also have to put this on the record too, that um, when Batman Forever came out, yes, I did collect all of the glass cups that McDonald's released. um, Which was a um, they released a series of collector cups that had like what they were glass cups engraved with all of the different characters from the movie, and um, we got every single one. And I think they're at my dad's house at the moment which i will be next time i visit i'll definitely be lifting those um and, and reclaiming them at some point
1: you couldn't have the limbs, bloody hell <laughs> um okay that's interesting cameron because um yeah you're obviously a little bit older than than dylan and i but it's not like you were there from the beginning with you two You've, you came to them at the they came to you at the right moment in your life clearly
2: yeah, you know, on the wings of a bat, uh, it's kind of like, I think it's how most people discover you do. But um, but yeah, it's I, I find particularly with these, um, you know, bands that came up through the 80s and things like that, that you, like those bands that are firmly kind of on like, you know, classic hits, kind of rock radio that you hear, like, you know so many of those bands you're kind of reading articles and people are telling you like this is the greatest band this is why these are the albums you've got to listen to um but you yeah it's kind of like it's kind of similar to comics like you kind of have different jumping on points with Mm. those bands um outside of purely just classic hits you know the best of albums there are so many so many acts that you kind of get into but then they don't really release a lot of, like, new music, um, whereas, like, you 2 are a little bit different. Like, they've consistently kind of released new albums over the years and they've kind of avoided a little bit just being, like, a heritage act, which is, like, a little bit rare kind of in the kind of music landscape.
1: I think that's a fair enough point. Um, and it's interesting what you're saying there about the fact that you 2 are kind of uncool-ish and the fact that that album especially was had a furor about it. That made you like it even more. It's kind of similar, I think, to Dylan and liking Speed Racer. Um, his favourite topic to bring up every episode on this podcast.
2: Oh yes, well you know I am Team Speed Racer as well, so I oh, think. Um, thank you. The um <laughs> the Wachowski sisters, I think you know it's one of those things where I'm constantly going back and looking at the the films that they made and going, geez, they really knew they always you know understood the assignment and um. <laughs> Every single movie that's being... Every single blockbuster that's being made now is kind of like aping on their their style. So, mm. um, yeah, Speed Racer. Speed, speed Racer, possibly the U2 film, maybe. Um, we'll have to wait and see.
3: <laughs> oh, no. Maybe from Lonnie's perspective. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Cameron, you, when you asked us to look at this this week, um, I think Dylan and I both just uh, listened to the album But I do remember the whole iTunes thing when it happened, but I didn't look into it again. Can you give us a rundown on what that whole debacle was?
2: Yeah, so basically... So you two have, like, history with Apple in that they had used one of their songs in one of those, like, iconic um iPod commercials where it's kind of like the silhouettes dancing but you can see that they've got yeah. that kind of iPods mm. in yeah. and so apparently like you two are pretty tight with Apple for a really long time and Bono was kind of on the record talking about how much he loves Steve Jobs so already like that's mm. not really gonna that's not really gonna help you two too much in the cool states <laughs> um being <desperate laughs> with, with Steve Jobs um but I think as time went on they kind of maintained that relationship and Apple were always kind of doing things with YouTube. 2 and then yeah they released they released uh I think there was like a whole bunch of different things that happened around YouTube but one of them was that they released like a special edition iPod that was like red and it was tied to um I think one of YouTube's 2s charities but then um I think it was around 2014 I think it was but Apple basically came out and said you know U2, we've got a gift for everyone and they announced that they were going to add the new U2 album Songs of Innocence to everyone's iTunes account, um, whether you liked it or not. So everyone just woke up the next day and you had a new U2 album in your iTunes account, which then I guess could then be popped across to your iPod or all your different devices. And, yeah, there was an immediate backlash um, so people basically just said, we don't want this. Um, (laughs) And I think it really uh, flared up in the kind of the anti-YouTube crowd. But also um, it it brought up all these questions about, you know, privacy and and Apple's ability to kind of like, you know, just nudge their way into Mm. everyone's private space, their music taste, their accounts, their phones, all these kind of things. Um, So, yeah, immediate backlash. And then it was kind of never done again. Like it was one of those things where... Um, it got such bad publicity um, and the conversation just became about the fact that it was being forced upon everyone rather than the album itself, which I think now if you kind of look at the coverage of, of that era, a lot of people are now looking back on it and just talking about how, and, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be a big defender of this, that the album was actually good, um, but the execution wasn't. So, um, But, yeah, still to this day, if you bring it up, people will just tell you how much they hated um, that whole putting it on your iTunes without asking you about it thing.
1: Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Dylan, the, the fact that it was put on people's phones and iTunes without permission?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think if they'd have just done it like, hey, if you've got an iTunes account or something, you can, you know, go onto the the app store, or the iTunes store, or whatever, and download it for free. If they'd have done it that way instead of like forced downloading it to people's iPhones, mm-hmm. I think it would have been different. Um, that's probably sure how they should have done it. But, yeah, they just took it a step too far, to be honest.
1: Yeah, That's fair enough. I think what you're saying there, Cameron, it's like a perfect storm of having you two. Bono kind of gets a bit of flack for being annoying. The band was a bit older at that point, like been around for a while, people were a bit sick of them. And then iTunes, privacy issues, that is always going to be an issue, I think, with um, technology and people yeah, it's a contested space, a perfect storm I think of um, all those things coming together and then the album itself gets lost behind everything else. What do
2: you reckon? Yeah, I think it, I think it's it's a really interesting kind of like case study in timing but also like what would then become the norm, right? Because um, there's a really great article that um, the the music writer Stephen Hyden wrote for Uproxx um, and in this article he wrote... I'm just going to quote from it he wrote but youtube's biggest mistake was failing to grasp a fundamental truth of modern consumer culture people now care way more about their phones than any individual album even an album they might actually want um and kind of in this piece he goes on to basically say You know what seems a little old-fashioned now? The expectation that our listening habits are private. Every time you log on to Spotify or Apple Music, the songs you play are tracked and that data is used Mm. to point you towards other songs you might like. As listeners, we freely give this information away with only faint recognition that this data is also commodified and sold to advertisers and marketers. So it was kind of like like this whole YouTube-Apple experiment was basically like the world we're living in now where every single week, you know, like, uh, you know, if you've got a subscription to any music service, um, they are looking in, they are basically going into your music collection and looking at what you like and then kind of flipping it um, and tapping you into algorithms and things like that, whether you like it or not. Um, so it was kind of like, it kind of like preempted the whole kind of digital world we were just about to face, which I think if you backtrack through like all the controversies of the music industry, it very much feels like we were always on the road towards this. When you go all the way back to like mm. the Napster era mm. with like illegal mm. downloads and then the rise of iTunes and then the forced YouTube album and then just the dominance of Spotify and all these streaming apps, um, that was the road that we were always on. And along the way, we just kind of had these like spikes in controversy where people were just really mad about it for a little bit. But then eventually we just kind of stepped aside and were like, okay, like it, whatever, if you make it easy for us, we'll just let you snoop around and put things in our accounts, whatever. Even removing songs. Um, I'm always blown away, especially on Spotify, when you go into an album and every single track is there except for the big hit. And it's because there's some rights issue, or like someone doesn't want to pay, someone wasn't, someone doesn't want to give the, the, all the, money to Spotify for whatever reason. It's really, it's super bizarre when you see those darked out songs, and you're like, wow, like, this sucks.
1: Yeah, you two, this this story is a flashpoint in the, in the music wars, isn't it? But um, the convenience of Spotify, that's gonna win out, isn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely, and also I think it's really interesting now when you're seeing a lot of musicians uh, take control of their masters, um, mm. and like I think what Taylor Swift's doing mm-hmm. right now is a really good example of this: re-recording her albums, mm. and just how much money there is in like controlling the rights, the publishing rights, but also just the what is it like, kind of like the uh, like the like if you own the estate of like an artist that's passed away, and how you can kind of sell off the rights to that music. And I read a really interesting article recently where um, I think Bob Dylan sold off his publishing rights for like $300 million or something to like one of these big kind of firms that handle a lot of these like music rights estate stuff. But then something similar has happened recently with the Beach Boys and someone was like, what are they going to do with Beach Boys music? And apparently a lot of people have kind of theorised that ever since uh, Fleetwood Mac's Dreams shot back into the charts because of TikTok, a lot of people that own the rights to these older songs are now trying to make that happen with these back catalogs so that they can get that, like, influx of cash from, like, everyone streaming, you know, older music that's suddenly become popular again and charting. So Mm -hmm. we're in this really weird space now where like the the controlling your own music now and the way it's distributed is like really, really more important than ever. And I think we're going to find out in the next few years too, like what's going on with some of these streaming apps and and how much cash and things like that, like artists are truly making after it's all kind of sliced up.
1: Geez, And that, that's so far away from, you know, Four blokes from Dublin or Belfast, <laughs> sorry,
2: trying to make some music, isn't it? So it is, wow. and I think that I think it's a classic example of like the controversy around how it was released, how this album was released, yeah. just completely overshadowed what's actually here, which is uh, what I think is like a really great late career album from from these Irish guys um, who are literally kind of really putting their hearts out with this album, which is why I kind of love it so much.
1: Okay, well, let's get to the album then. Um, First of all, Dylan, what were your thoughts on the actual music that we listened to?
3: You too? More like you poo? (laughs) Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Had had to get a little jab in. Uh, It's all right. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you too... Again, music's subjective. Um, I'm not a big music head. Like, uh, I don't listen to, like, the intricacies of songs and that sort of thing. But to me, you 2 they don't come across as very unique. Like, all their songs to me, they kind of sound the same for the most part. Like, 90% of their songs, there's, like, there's like this uh this scene in like a teen movie, let's just say. Um uh, a guy's upset a girl, they broken up, that sort of thing. And then there's like this uh montage of them like uh you know, being alone and looking longingly in the distance and that sort of thing. You could put ninety percent of U two songs in the background to those scenes, to be honest.
1: Okay, he's he's throwing down there, Cameron. What do you reckon? I
2: <laughs> oh, no, I think he I think I think Dylan's right. I think there's this element of U two where they some of their songs play so big to, like, the mainstream. And, and when I say that, I mean, like, you know, it's that really big, broad, like, kind of stadium rock music um, that I think when they actually started out as a band, like, that was the complete opposite to what they were trying to achieve. And I think, and we'll get into this soon, but with Songs of Innocence, like, that, the album very much is the story of how they came to be as a band and the kind of music that they aspired to. But I think then what YouTube became and and what Dylan's talking about is that I think they reached this point and I think it was around the time when Joshua Tree came out where they were so ambitious to be like the world's biggest band that they just started kind of making music that was kind of like it just needed to fill that giant space of like stadium rock. And when you start doing that, like I think you lose touch a bit with why you started being a band in the first place, which I think for U2 is really well defined and clear cut in their story, and then I think that's why you get really great albums like Upton Baby and Zooropa, because that's when they start questioning. That's when they start kind of losing their minds, questioning whether it was a good move to do that, yeah. <laughs> and so that's when you get like that's when you get some really weird, cool stuff happening with U2 where they're just basically having this like existential crisis about being that band that's most likely gonna play in a teen movie where it's like with or without you <laughs> like and also I have to kind of confess that one of my a U two song that I hate the most, which is their most popular song, is one. Um which is the you've probably heard it a million times, it's like one love one blood like it's like you hear it all the time. Like it's constantly used in like montages of people like meeting each mm. other at the airport and like mm. crying. Um Like that's like, I absolutely hate that U2 song, but I think in the UK they did a poll a while ago of like their most favourite song and that was like number one. Um, And so it's kind of like, I think, yeah, with U2, as much as I love them as a band, they do suffer from that syndrome of like just trying to like appeal to everybody Um, and then they kind of lost touch with like, you know, what I really love about them, which is like kind of their roots as a band and like how they came to be.
3: Yeah, kind of a thing where, like, if you try to appeal to everybody, you appeal to
2: nobody. That sort of
3: thing.
1: You there, Cameron?
2: You still there? Oh yeah, yeah. I was just agreeing heartedly with oh. the the whole. <laughs> and I think you see that. With, you see that with so many bands. Like, I think you see that with mm. um, even just like artists. Like, I think there are so many kind of people that become like really huge pop stars, and you kind of, you kind of, they they put something out that's like really original and from the heart, and then it's then the world kind of holding its breath, waiting to see what they do next and whether they can actually kind of like evolve or change or whether they're just going to mm. keep kind of churning out the same stuff time and time again. I mean, even with some some acts that are like huge, like you just kind of sometimes you're listening to their stuff and you're going like they've really figured out the formula, but I can't figure out why this is so pop, why people aren't getting over this yet. Mm. Um, yeah. Which I guess comes back to that joke that, you know, with, the band ACDC, that they've put out the same album for like 50 years, um, (laughs) which I think there are some bands that are very good at doing that and then there are others that aren't so much.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say all those things, Cameron, because I spoke to our theme song singer Mark Irons, good mate who loves U2. He said that, I asked him why U2 is so polarising because they they aren't these days. Mm. Um, He said they got very big and very omnipresent um that's a word he used hard to go a day or two without hearing you two in some capacity if you're in the world um and also they used to stand out against their contemporaries but now they've outlasted them and they just kind of sound regular because they're the ones who are so well known do you reckon that's true
2: yeah i reckon it is and i think we i think you have to contextualize it within like we were discussing before like the ability for not only a band to endure and keep touring but also keep releasing albums that not only fans are going to be interested in but I guess, you know, there's all that BS too of like, you know, getting getting good reviews and like whatever and like having people actually listen to those albums yeah. and I yeah. think there are so few bands now that have been around for like a long time that are doing both. Um, I can think of like one other artist that like I, I actually saw live too that that everything clicked in that show was like, I think Bruce Springsteen is still one of those artists that can like tour and release interesting new albums. Um, Whereas like, I remember ages ago I went and saw the Eagles live with my mum, and like, that was like a real, like, we're just going to play the hits. um, And you may may have to sit through like one of our new songs that nobody bought the album for. Kind of thing, and it was like, but you can tell the difference between those shows. You know, you can tell the difference between, you know, a band that's kind of like we're living in two worlds of like, you know, we're gonna play, we're gonna play the hits, but we're also gonna play some tracks off our new album. Um, whereas there are some bands that are just real heritage acts where it's like they come out and it's like, it's nothing but the hits, and it's all just like a big nostalgia kind of act that that is just purely there for them to kind of cash in on whatever kind of fame or success they've still got left. Um, which is, like, always really, really fascinating. But, yeah, and I even think about, like, bands now and, like, acts now. Like, I'm wondering, like, you know, will someone like Taylor Swift still be touring and releasing albums that are just as interesting, like, in 50 years' time? Um, like, I'm wondering if, like, that even that cycle of music, is that going to keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter in this kind of, like, music streaming age? Yeah.
1: That's an interesting question. What do you reckon, Dylan?
2: Yeah, yeah,
3: 100% agree. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's also kinda of like that, um kinda of brings to mind like I don't know if you guys have seen Chef, John Favreau. Mm. that sort of thing. I but Dustin Hoffman's you, like though. Yeah, you know, there's like this point where Dustin Hoffman's like this restaurant owner, um that uh John Favreau works for in the movie. And John Favreau's trying to like reinvent his uh his menu and that sort of thing, do new stuff, but Dustin Hoffman just like keeps him doing the same stuff over and over that's worked for ages. Um and he's like what happens if you had bought tickets to the Stones and they didn't play Satisfaction? You'd burn the fucking place to the ground. So, you know, you can understand why people tend to go with the hits more so than the new stuff and why they kind of get stuck in a loop because um, better to be safe than sorry, I guess.
2: so true. The Stones are a really interesting counterpoint because um, I think they've released something like five or six albums. Like, they they consistently release music, um, but... Mm when you go to their shows, you can just really feel the oxygen kind of gets sucked out of the the arena when they play the lead single off the new album. Um, Mm. And also too, just I think it must just be maddening having to play, even though it's kind of like probably the best job in the world. Like it just must be maddening to like have to sing like satisfaction, like every single night (laughs) for like your entire life. Even if, even for artists that like have written like maybe songs that just aren't like the greatest songs of all time, but people still show up for them. You know, I'm thinking maybe like you know, like you know, Smash Mouth having to play All Star like for the rest <laughs> of their lives, like that. That that's that's a path to madness, my friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. Uh, again, I asked my, my mate Mark about this. Um, you know, have they been resting their laurels recently, YouTube? And he said they might have been doing that. Um, for after all that you can all that you can't leave behind, is what he said. They kind of. Can does sound like a U2 tribute band playing a formula? But he did say they're still trying new things as well. So it's a bit of a, a push-pull there. But, yeah, exactly right. Do you do the stuff that made you successful or do you keep reinventing yourself perhaps to your own detriment? Mm. I don't know what I'd do if I was a world-famous artist like this. It'd be a really difficult place to be in.
2: Yeah, so I guess getting back to like Songs of Innocence like as the actual album itself, mm. And I think one of the reasons why I love it a lot, and this is why I'm like people need to revisit it away from the, the controversy of how it was released, is that, like, it's one of those really rare albums where you've got a band that's, like, really long in the tooth. They've been together for ages. The lineup has never changed. Like, it's always been the same. Mm. It's always been the same band <laughs> since they were, like, really young. Like, they formed when they were in there. I think um, Larry... The, the drummer, he was 14 when they started the band. So, like, that's how far back they go. Um, and so I think what's really great about Songs of Innocence and then the album they released after it, um, Songs of Experience, like, if you listen to Songs of Innocence, it's this really great, like, autobiographical album, which is them looking back on their entire career and just kind of going, like, how did we get here? Like, and kind of it's one of those rare albums where you actually get a band kind of really honestly looking inwards and kind of going like, yeah, this is what inspired us. This is what led to us forming a band. And like something I really love about the album is the opening track, which is called the miracle of Joey, Joey Ramone. Um, It's the opening track of the album. And if you listen to it, it's them basically singing about this kind of legendary story that happened where um, the Ramones toured uh, Europe and there's this really interesting thing happening in music at the moment where a lot of kind of music journalists are kind of looking at the way that different types of music kind of formed and became popular in the world, and one of them is punk. And um, some journals wrote this really good book a while back that was like kind of the oral history of punk music, and they started out with this thesis that like punk music didn't come out of the UK, it came out of the art scene of New York City, and basically they trace it back to kind of um, what was going on in New York in kind of like the early 70s that then led to the Ramones forming. And then they tour tour Europe during this period of time. And while they're touring Europe, basically they play to all of the crowds in the UK that would then be full of teenagers that then would go to form all of the kind of punk, post-punk bands. So like, you know, there's these stories of the Ramones playing shows and like members of The Clash and the Sex Pistols are in the crowd. And then when they're in Ireland, they go to this show, I think it's in 1977, and like you two like sneak in through a back door, back door. <laughs> and they get into this Ramones gig and they had no like they, they had no money, they couldn't get a ticket, that's why they snuck in. And so this opening track of this album is basically Bono singing about how they formed a band when they were teenagers and he had like such low confidence about his voice and how he could be a lead singer. That they were almost going to call it quits, and then they saw the Ramones play, and then when Bono saw um, Joey and Ramones singing, he, it all clicked. Like he knew that it didn't matter, like whether you were like the best singer or not, you didn't have to. Ha- you you could be in a band and be a lead singer, and you could be a band like the Ramones, which is just like shut up and play and you could do something great. And so that's what gave him the confidence to kind of become Bono. And so when you listen to this song, it's basically him just saying, like, singing about like, you know, that night and how they became a band. And apparently Bono stayed friends with Joey Ramone and most of the Ramones for the rest of their lives. Um, so they then later on in life became friends, which is like even more kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, but when we are talking before about how, you two got really far away from being that band like when you think about where they where they formed and how and you get that on this album is that they very much came they were like kind of like a punk band that formed like in Ireland in the middle of like one of the most tumultuous times in like Irish history you know like they had the troubles going on where lots of cars were being bombed and lots of people were kind of dying on the mm. streets and so if you listen to songs of innocence like there's so many songs on that album like one of them's called raised by wolves which is basically a song about how bono's friend um and and people that they knew kind of were involved in really terrible things that happened during the troubles um even you know one of the tracks on songs of innocence called california it's like a the whole song is about how when you two toured america for the first time and like they were just like crippled by the change in um kind of atmosphere from Ireland to America like in like Bono just sings kind of about how he spent most of the time just like in his hotel room like kind of terrified of like what was going to happen to them out like when they left home Um, and just how much of a shock to the system it was to go from like the streets of Ireland where it was just like horrible to like California where it's like sunshine and beaches and so I think, yeah, if you listen to this album, there's a story in there and it's them saying, this is how we formed as a band. And there's so many bits and pieces of the album where they're basically going like, we can't believe it. Like we can't, looking back, it's incredible like what we did. Um, even there's like a lyric in, um, in the opening track where I think Bono says something like, I get so many things I don't deserve. And like every time I hear that, I'm just like, oh man, like that just, that's like a really nice little lyric that kind of sums up like a lot of what they've been through. Um, so yeah, that's why I think people need to kind of go back and listen to this because I don't think a lot of bands are doing this late in their career because they're putting out like books and podcasts and things like that. Looking back on their careers, they're not actually making an album that goes like, "Hey, let's let's use our music to kind of look back on our career."
1: Well, I think I need uh, the Cameron Williams Study Guide because I wasn't getting any of that when I was. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no no and uh, you know with that sort of context um yeah i might have grabbed me more but you know just looking at its surface level like not diving into any of the lyrics and that sort of thing nothing really jumped out of me i i did like actually raised by wolves i thought that was probably my favorite track of the of the album oh, um really? like like the background snarling they used throughout and that sort of thing mm. uh also didn't mind cedarwood road i like the drum work in that one didn't mind that that was pretty good too
1: Sorry, just to say, Mark. That I asked Mark what he thought about the album. He said, um, "Oh, you know, I haven't spent much time with it." But then he like named four tracks straight away that he liked. So he's like, <laughs> he's a YouTube boy. Um, but he actually liked um, songs of experience more. He said that spoke to him a bit more. Like, can you think of them as kind of um, joint effort, Cameron?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um I think like like Songs of Innocence, like it's it's definitely kind of the looking back album and then like Songs of Experience, obviously the title's like saying to you that, you know, like this is us now, um, and kinda of you listen to the album. Um, it's kind of a it, Songs of Experience is a little bit more of like a you know, like your dad buys a Ferrari and kind of gets an earring, kind of album a bit. Um, <laughs> it's very much, it's very much kind of them kind of singing about life now, and and I find it, you know, it's tough with them because you know, like the the, the life they live must just be like so crazy in terms of like you know the money they have and the, like, the touring they do and all this kind of thing. So I think it's got some interesting things on it, but it definitely, as, as a package, it's definitely kind of like a looking back, looking forward kind of mm. double album. And I have heard that when they, I had heard that when they were recording Songs of Innocence, they had so many songs written that I think they actually did have enough to kind of make a double album, but they just decided that, you know, especially when the Apple thing was in play, that maybe that may have been too much. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah <laughs> apparently they just decided to then carve it up but also I think I haven't really dug too deeply into like who worked on both albums but I think also you know their collaboration now with all different types of producers and songwriters and people that they kind of bring into the fold is is bigger than ever before whereas in the past I think they all their albums were kind of produced by the same people over and over again and they just kind of kept going back to the same producers whereas now i think they're working with more kind of like modern kind of like uh contemporary producers who have worked on like a lot of different things like i think even like you know i think is it is it the producer dead mouse like i think even he played a role in one of these albums so there's like just so much more going on behind the scenes than ever before which you like to think it's them being like, oh, we want to be a bit more contemporary. But also sometimes, too, I feel like maybe it's also that youth and enthusiasm might help override some of the age going on in the studio. <laughs> but, um, and also, too, like, just, you know, they need to find someone that can, like, use Pro Tools and, like, you know, do all the the computer work properly um, yeah. because not everyone can be like, you know, Dave Roll who comes along and's like, I'm going to do an analog album and, like, record it all on reel-to-reel and it's like... I think some bands are just like we'd love to do that, um, but at the same time they're just like no, we kind of want to roll with the times a bit and kind of mm. try to keep things as cutting edge as possible. And I think you two kind of have always done that. Um, but I think yeah, even looking into like who worked on the production of these albums, I'm just seeing so many names, and it's just like oh wow, like they're collaborating with so many people, whereas before it was just it was just the four of them and like maybe one other producer kind of calling the shots.
1: Mm. I, I cut Dylan off before, but I think he was asking like, what are the best tracks on the album. What do you reckon? They had to listen to like two or three songs, what are your picks?
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands,
2: like, start to finish, like, it's, like, an album, like, it's, like, you have to, kind of, listen to it the whole way through to, like, get the whole thing, Um, but if you were to carve it up as singles, like, I think probably the one that jumps out to people the most is Every Breaking Wave, which is, like, a, kind of, really big, kind of, like, ballad, kind of, sing-along song that is very much about, kind of, like, getting older and things like that, Um, but, yeah, like, Miracle of Joey Ramone, the opening track, like for me, is always like a big one just because I like I same as you two, like I just adore the Ramones so much. So to hear that kind of enthusiasm put into a song, like just rules really hard. Um, yeah, Raised by Wolves, like pretty much everything you guys have mentioned, like it's really interesting to hear the, the songs that jump out the most at people because it very much kind of aligns to the songs I listen to the most off the album. Um, but yeah, I reckon it's one of those rare ones where you've got to play it all the way through each time just to kind of really, like I find when I cherry pick the singles off it, it feels kind of disjointed, um, just because all out of whack, you're not getting that, like mm. that kind of story that they're telling, um, throughout the entire album about their kind of their lives. Well,
1: that's interesting. I wonder if people, when this came on their iTunes back in 2014, if they listened to it at all. Do you think they probably listened to one or two tracks and, yeah, kind of felt a bit disjointed?
2: <laughs> I think it, it's, it's really weird because I think most people would have heard the, the lead track because it was used in the iPod commercial. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think in all articles I kind of looked up about the reaction to the album, most people kind of had made a joke about, you know, like hearing the, the kind of, oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is like in the first single and just like going like, oh, like this is too, this is like to you too. Yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think, I don't think many people listen to it. Um, and I think the, it, it really does feel like the only people that listened to it were people that then had to turn around and write articles about it or like try to figure out what was going on. Um, whereas I think as, as a gesture, most people just glanced over it um and didn't even bother to give it a listen Mm. um even like i don't even know like I, i don't even know like if you two fans i don't even know like what the fan reaction was at the time too because like i said it was just completely engulfed in the controversy but the only saving grace i do remember from that period of time was i think at the end of the year at the end of 2014 when rolling stone put out their like best albums of the year they gave it to songs of innocence like they made it their number one album Mm -hmm. and i actually think if you read that review like they're pretty much saying what i'm saying now and like kind of like (laughs) everyone that's written like you know um pieces looking back like even that stephen hyden piece i mentioned before like his article is very similar to this review but they seem to kind of at the time be saying you know yeah this is like a legit good album but then i think even that got trolled as well because a lot of people are saying like rolling stone are just doing this to like get attention <laughs> mm. because 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 of the poor reception that the album had upon release so again like it then fell into that new cycle of like oh they're just doing this to troll us like apple trolled us with this album like you know don't <laughs> don't buy into it that kind of thing
1: win, eh? Jeez. <laughs> um I asked Mark this question, Cameron. I'm going to ask you as well, given you're the expert. What would happen if Bono died tomorrow? What would be the reaction? How would he be remembered?
2: Ooh, this is like a really tough one. Um, uh, I think what we'd have to endure first would be like every comedian making like a joke on Twitter for like 48 hours about it. Like just that kind of like that initial reaction is always like the worst. Mm Mm-hmm um I think to I think after that initial kind of react like that that kind of like that cycle that they've all you two have always been in which is like people just taking jabs at them constantly um would be that you it would then settle more into the kind of like hey like this is why this matters kind of thing um and then I guess the fans would then have to come to terms with the fact that it probably would legit be over. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they could kind of do like a lot of, I, I don't think they could do like what AC/DC did, or what NXS tried to do, which is like mm-hmm. try to replace him. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would definitely be the end of the band. Um, and then I think after that, you would then probably see a massive resurgence in interest in their music um, as it gets played endlessly by kind of radio stations in tribute. Um, I think all those things are kind of a big part of, that music cycle and yeah like you hear that story now that you know a lot of artists their profits like they just go up um in death which is really fascinating so yeah I think yeah. we definitely get that the initial kind of gross <laughs> jab mm-hmm. jabs jabs at you 2 reaction then we'd kind of get everyone else coming in with their serious takes and then I think it'd just be like it'd just be like this huge resurgence in, in their their albums as like people kind of rediscover them and, and, and hear about them for the first time, especially now that we're kind of in the middle of this kind of generational shift, you know, like where anyone could, any band can now get the, the Fleetwood Mac treatment, um, which is just, you know, all it takes is, someone to kind of bring a song back and then suddenly mm. people are like this whole new generation similar to you know say when a Batman movie comes out and and, and a kid discovers you too. now you've kind of got <laughs> things happening in pop culture where it, all it takes is one thing and suddenly a band is back and you know mm. as sad as it would be I think something like that would definitely probably happen with you too. um and the same goes with all of that band because I think you know, they're all such key members. And like I said before, the lineup has never changed. So if, if one thing happens to any of them, um, it's, it's, just, it's going to be the end of you too. And I think that's going to be kind of a really big deal.
1: Yeah, I don't wish anything bad happened to Bono, but um, my, uh, my thought was like, yeah, at the moment they are in this sort of uncool space, but they'll all change when they're not around anymore. I think there would be a resurgence. I think people, they might be sick of Bono for certain reasons at the moment, um, but, yeah, if he, if he passed away, then it's all, all going to change and I think you'd have more of a focus on the music rather than the man.
2: Yeah, and I think we we have to talk to a little bit about the the Bono factor of it all and I guess like you two <laughs> as activists. Hmm. Um, like, like having been to two of their shows, like it really, like, It's one of those things where you're like, heart is in the right place, but there's like kind of like, they kind of mastered like the performative kind of activism that I think Mm. is like really hard to do, like in a sincere, genuine way. And like when, like when they do it during their shows, like it just interrupts the flow of the concert so much that, like, even if you're, like, the biggest hard chorus, like, YouTube 2 fan, you you don't mind Bono at all. Like, when you're sitting through these kind of things, you're like, ah, oh, this is really good, but you're like, damn, I just wish they'd be, like, a minute deep into the next song already. Like, it's just yeah. it's just a really fascinating part of their kind of, their stage performance and their persona. But you even look back at, like, um, like, every now and then, like, I'll go back and watch like old concert footage of U2 and like a lot of people forget that like one of the ways they broke out as a band was at Live Aid mm. and so like a lot of people like the same day that Queen played Live Aid and there's like all that iconic footage of Freddie Mercury doing his thing and getting the crowd to sing back and all that kind of stuff like I think in that same day like U2 had kind of played the main stage of Live Aid, and they'd basically just like blown every band off the stage um, but what happened was, like, during that performance, like, Bono jumps off the stage and goes down into the crowd and pulls a girl out of the crowd and, dance, like, slow dances with her, like, in front of everybody. And it's, like, this huge moment that would then very much kind of define those kind of, like, acts of kindness and act- the activism that the band would do. But it's really interesting to go back and watch that moment. You can find it on YouTube. Like, just Google YouTube Live Aid. You can find it and it's really interesting to see them do that when it's like sincere and genuine like cuz but i cuz then when i saw them at the 360 tour he did exactly the same thing but it was completely manufactured like you could tell that he's done that every night mm. during the tour whereas to see it like in its purest form where he's actually just like making this snap decision and going down into the crowd and doing it and everyone's like losing their minds like it's so cool and like I read up the story about what happened. Apparently when he did that, they were meant to play one more song in the set, but because he did that, the band just had to basically play an instrumental version of the song until they came back on stage to finish it. And then they couldn't play their final song. And apparently when they came off stage, they were all like, we blew it. Like we totally blew it. We didn't even get to play another song. Like no one's going to find out about that song either. Like we stuffed it up. And then like the next day in the papers, it was like queen blows everybody away at live aid. But the band that won the day was like you too. And that's kind of how they broke big, like, internationally because everyone saw Live 8 and suddenly was like, who is this band? And then it just went from mm. there. But, like, it's really interesting that they came off stage and they were like, we blew it. And they were, like, blaming Bono for, like, <laughs> <love> Bono.
4: yeah.
2: <laughs> like, it was all Bono's fault, which I kind of feels like when you think about the band as a whole too, like, when you think about U2, you, you think about Bono, you don't think about Edge or um, any of the other guys who are just such incredible musicians um, and probably are like one of the tightest four band members in the world in terms of like just the sound of that band and their ability to just like play those huge stadiums. And there's just four of them. Like it's, it's pretty incredible, but yeah, like from the beginning, like Bono has pretty much just swallowed the band in whatever he's doing, um, which is really interesting. And also too, because that would usually kill a band, right? Like, that would usually destroy mm-hmm. a band. You hear so many stories about, like, we've got to do something about this lead singer. <laughs> <laughs> Bono could have been booted out of a band in Ireland, like, such a long time ago, but mm-hmm. there's something there that they're, like, like, they, like, he's kind of like that. I don't know. Is he like the idiot mate where they're just like, we love playing in this band and we'll just put up with whatever Bono does? And I think that maybe <laughs> that Live 8 example is like how they kind of go. How they kind of justify it. They're like, oh, we blew it, but Bono did his thing and it worked. So we'll just keep playing together.
1: Well, I guess it works, yeah. When I asked Mark about that as well about you know, the Bono. He said if he passed away tomorrow, there'd be jokes and memes about it, like like you said, Cameron. But also, he'd be remembered as the greatest frontman of all time, perhaps, one of at least. Oh. Yeah, one of, yeah. One of, yes, yeah, sorry, one of. <laughs> and um, an activist who achieved immense outcomes through tireless effort. Um, which I think is fair enough. Also, you could have mentioned this weird thing about U2 and Bono as, like, you know, activists and about humanity and social change, etc. And all those things are quite in vogue these days, especially, but yet U2 are still kind of hated for it, even though that's a popular sort of stance to take for musicians these days. Is that just that thing you're talking about, is, like, people don't see it as sincere or even though it's, like, a good thing to be doing stuff for charity... What I seems like an idiot, so people don't respond well to it.
2: Mm, yeah. The it's it's really, um it's really interesting now when it comes to like musicians taking political stance because of I guess now we're in that period of time now where like everyone is so on edge about like like, you know, cancel culture which I don't truly believe exists. No. But it's one of those things where it's just kind of like, you know, I think there was, an, there was like, a singer that, like, went to the, the Capitol march in the U.S. and got in, like, a whole bunch of trouble from his label because he went to that. Um, even, like, the whole Taylor Swift thing where she, like, put that link up on her Instagram for people to register. She, like, finally made a political stance after, like, not making one for ages. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, Lonnie, it, like, definitely feels like now – there are more kind of there's a more strategic approach to kind of activism in music Mm -hmm. um whereas i think with you two it's always been there since the beginning and i think it's just purely because of like where they came from like i think Mm -hmm. if they hadn't Mm -hmm. been kind of if they hadn't kind of come out of ireland during that time and you know the troubles and everything all the unrest that was going on there i think Mm -hmm. that really like energized them to like bring attention to like we like really terrible things that were happening in the world and like I can't fault them for that because, like, you know, that must have been such a horrible time. And for them to then suddenly get this platform to kind of go, like, to bring attention to what's happening in their own country but then go, hey, maybe we could do this for other countries, like, that can only be a good thing. But then, like, when you see it kind of done large every single night on a stage in front of, like, hundreds and thousands of people, I think the more that happens, it, the more disingenuous it becomes. And like I said, like, yeah, having sat through some of their kind of like political moments during concerts, um, it just it just comes crashing in in a way that you just, you expect it from you too, but when it's actually happening to you and you're in the crowd and you're like, you just want to hear, hear them play some songs. And also too, the songs are political as well. Like it's in mm. the music already. Mm. So it's kind of like when they play Sunday, Bloody Sunday, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, whoa, this is such a powerful song. Um, but then, like, to sit through, like, a five-minute thing after where, like, someone's coming up on a screen and telling you about all these horrible things that are happening, you kind of like, they just did that in the song. So it's kind of like, it's just a really bizarre thing that they kind of double down on a lot of that kind of activism.
1: Yeah. What, what do you think, Dylan? Do you think it's a problem when um, musicians and artists are political and take a stance? No,
3: I don't, I don't think it's a problem. Again, it's just... if. If you're doing it too much and uh, making that your identity, basically, which it seems you two kind of has, like that's something that's been linked to them, as you said, for years. Mm. Um, Like if that's all they're about, it kind of feels like they're, like you understand that they're trying to do the right thing, but when they just shove it down your throat, (laughs) just like nonstop, it's, it's hard to not get annoyed, like... Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think it's the the performative nature of it can be the issue. Mm. I think that's where, I mean, I think all of that frustration, like that's where that South Park episode came from, right? Like those, like (laughs) Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who I think are always like so good at kind of putting their, putting whatever's annoying them through that filter of South Park. (laughs) But I feel like, you know, those guys, like you can tell that episode definitely came out of them going like they've they've just had it like they just had had enough of (laughs) that kind of performative part of Bono's kind of persona and then so I think that episode is a really great example of what happens when it's just like what there's just like one too many times where like Bono's doing something that is annoying people and uh, that episode very much kind of <laughs> represents that grand sentiment of how people people feel towards Bono, which is interesting because it's like that's how they feel about Bono, but not about the band. Like you know, mm. like it's very much like they're taking shots at Bono. And I think too, like Bono definitely does things where sometimes I see him say stuff or he'll do things, and I'm just kind of like, I wonder if he ran that past the band. Like I wonder if he <laughs> told them he was going to do this, um, which is really interesting. Also too, like. Something I we haven't talked about, which, which is, like, it's too much of a digression, but you have to remember there was a period of time, like, kind of in the 90s when, like like I was saying before, when you two kind of lost their minds a bit in that Octum Baby Zoropa period where Bono would literally come out on stage in different personas. Um,
1: okay. I and I don't know if you guys... This.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you guys know about this, but he basically had, like, I think it was, like, three or four different kind of characters he would come out on stage as... And um, one of them, which is the funniest one, um, and I think this is how they got the Batman gig, was he would come out on stage as this character called Macphisto, which was basically the devil,
0: and it was kind of like Bono.
2: It was kind of like Bono's version of like the Joker, but he had like um, he had like devil horns on and like white makeup. And if you just oh, Google Macphisto, you'll see it. It's hilarious. I don't think I can. <laughs> but um, yeah, but like. There was this period of time where I, I think as a, as a performer, he was trying so hard to distance himself from the kind of character he had be, had become, mm-hmm. that he was just trying out all these different characters and personas on stage every night. And um, and also, too, you have to remember, you two, speaking of their activism, they went through this period where I think it was during the Zoo TV tour, which I was too young to, to go to or remember, but... Um, they would do this thing in between their songs where they would, like, get, like, a phone on stage and they would, like, call, like, world leaders and things like that, like, leave (laughs) them a message, Um, which, (laughs) which... Again, like, if you're watching YouTube play live and you have to sit through 10 minutes of Bono, like, leaving a message on, like, you know, like, Bill Clinton's phone, um, like, you know, yeah. it, like I said, it's going to interrupt the flow of the concert. But I have to think there is a period of time kind of in Bono's career where I really do think he kind of lost his mind trying to separate himself from, like, the, the activist guy. Um, and I think, yeah, so it was McFeesto And then there was a character called The Fly, which is basically just, like, Bono in, like, all leather and beat those these no huge things. black sunglasses and then there was one that was like i think it was like the tough guy and so he would come out on stage like wearing like a t-shirt and i think they parodied this on the simpsons um he'd come out on stage with like a muscle man kind of t-shirt that made him look yeah. very buff and he'd be like a boxer he'd be like a boxer kind of tough guy character so again like I think he was kind of going through his Madonna period where he was just trying all these different personas on. Um, And yeah, I think if you look back on that period of time, that's where I always go like, Oh, this is really interesting because this is them coming to terms with their like public image in a really fascinating way, which peaks at um they released this I think I can't remember what the name of the album is but I think it's called pop they released this album it's basically like U2 kind of doing like kind of like a disco inspired like electronic album and it's like the absolute worst but (laughs) it's kind of the peak of them like losing their minds which is like really really fascinating because then they snap back to like very much like traditional kind of U2 stuff um in kind of like the early 2000s which is really fascinating so yeah, I think he did try to kind of develop different personas, but he did it in such a theatrical way that um, it, it just only comes across now as like, oh, whoa, like if there's not drugs involved in this, there's something weird going on. <laughs> yeah.
1: That is so weird. i never heard of that, Cameron, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, that, that's funny. Um, I just like the idea of the other band members being like, okay, is Wondale on his outfits tonight? Is <laughs> this Bisto coming and- out tonight? Jeez.
2: And they seem to be, and I don't know if this is kind of like the Irish part of it, but, like, it seems to be very much like that kind of really dry Irish sense of we're just going to put up with this, and, like, (laughs) and it's like, yeah, that's Bono. He's, like, our idiot, mate. Yeah. Um, And I think that may be what has kept them together as a band, um, that for all the crazy stuff that has happened, like, kind of Bono is, like, the is kind of the crazy guy and if you look at kind of like the way that they're presented on stage, like Bono is like the wild and crazy guy and Edge is very much the straight man Mm -hmm. and then the other two band members kind of feed off kind of Edge's kind of energy as well in terms of just like they're just like kind of grinning and bearing it through whatever crazy stuff is happening but they're all going along with it. So it's kind of like this really great dynamic between – the weird crazy stuff Bono is doing and then them just kind of being these like pretty chill Irish guys just being like, yeah, that's Bono. He's our, he's our like, he's our dodgy mate, um, <laughs> which I think, yeah, that's probably a good way to like sum up you too. It's just a bunch of Irish guys and their dodgy mate. <laughs> yeah.
1: I listened to this podcast. It's called the Rugby League Digest. Probably not something you you would know much about. Um, what they do on that podcast is they start their own Hall of Fame for players. Oh, and nice. got different criteria. And one of the criteria for their um, Hall of Fame is, you know, can you tell the story of Rugby League without them? And I was thinking about this in terms of you too. I was like, can you tell the story of pop or rock music without them? I don't think so, hey. Like, for all their faults and for everything that's mm. been going on, you two, I think, are essential to the pop music story. What do you reckon?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely one of those things where, in terms of, like, the way that, like, arena rock music became a thing, like, in the 80s, like, I think you 2 are definitely part of that and you can hear it, like, in all, like, and it's really weird. I think there was a comment recently, it's, like, a weird band to reference, but I think, like, it was, like, the lead singer of Maroon 5 recently said something like, there are no bands anymore or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no, like, rock bands, like, new Mm. rock bands anymore. Like, it very much now lives in that kind of indie band camp kind of world now. Um, which is, like, it's it's hard to get your head around, but I think when you do dig down a bit, like, yeah, like, off the top of my head, I can't think of too many, like, bands that have broken out in a really big way like bands have in the past, like, where they're playing, like, big, huge shows. Like, they're not just playing, like, clubs and stuff like that. Even, you know, the idea of that now is, like, hard to fathom. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think you 2 very much led the way for, like, how you can go from being this like small little kind of like tight punk band to being like this arena rock kind of spectacular which I think you can see like you know um even bands like Coldplay um and and all those kind of acts that have come out even through to like you know recently like I've been I've I've watched that documentary recently Supersonic about Oasis Mm -hmm. and you know even Oasis like um for everything that they them too in terms of being a punching bag and you know the whole the, all the humor around you know anyway he's Wonderwall, um, <laughs> even them as a band like their sound is so big and huge that it can it has to fill bigger spaces, and so yeah. I think you two definitely did that um, you know even like um, I mentioned Coldplay like I, I remember I was watching something about Coldplay recently and they had all this like file footage of them when they were just like a little small band. And, like, you see interviews with, like, Chris Martin and and some of those band members, and, like, as much as they were, like, oh, we're just, like, a bunch of, like, university mates starting a band, like, you see these interviews, like, there's everything they're saying, like, they've got ambitions of, like, playing stadiums and, like, huge shows. Um, And it kind of feels like that comes back to kind of, like, the way that kind of, like, U2 and similar bands of that era kind of, like, led the way. Um, But, yeah, I don't think you would see many bands kind of playing these big, like, bands of U2's level kind of playing these big, huge stadium shows if they hadn't kind of led the way with, like, what they did. Um, and, you know, when I talk about this, it's kind of like they definitely had a period in the 80s where they kind of went from, like, just doing, like, their usual kind of stage shows to doing these, like, big, ambitious, huge, you know, like I mentioned the Zoo TV tour before. Like, that was, like, you know, the stage set up for that was, like, TV screens and, like, huge, like, kind of, multimedia displays so I think yeah in terms of like music they definitely led the way of how you could kind of take that sound into those bigger places and like put on a show I mean the 360 tour that I saw um, I remember reading an article at the time saying that tour was so expensive to put on that they were operating at a loss so like that tour made no money um, because it was all just going back into um, setting up this huge claw crab stage thing like in every country they went to. Um, so again, like that's how ambitious it got, like that they were like putting on a show that like made zero money because it was so elaborate and expensive.
1: I reckon the McFisto costume was probably elaborate as well. So. <laughs> do
2: you want to know something funny about McPheisto? The way they do it now, he, he brings McFisto back. But the way he does it now is he comes out on stage and he basically this is like this is so hilarious to explain but he basically comes out on stage and opens an ipad and does like a filter on his face like an instagram filter (laughs) and the the filter is mcfisto and like so up on the big screen it's bono's face but it's got like a white paint the lipstick and the horns on it and he basically gives like a little speech like as mcfisto um and they usually do it right before they kind of dive into one of their songs that's kind of like got a bit bit of like kind of like an edgier feel to it um but yeah so McFiesto has now evolved from him being kind of in in makeup and costume to being an Instagram <laughs> face filter on an iPad um and I actually heard a really funny story one time apparently he, they were doing it live and apparently he forgot the password to the iPad um that he like does it <laughs> on <laughs> So he's on stage trying to figure out how to open this app to do this face thing on the big screen and everyone in the crowd's just like, come on, Bono. Um, but, yeah, so even that is kind of a really good example of like how the band's kind of like gone in a really weird direction when it comes to like one of their ideas and like technology.
1: People in the crowd are like, don't, it's okay, don't worry about it. We, we'll just imagine it. <laughs> don't have to see it. Bono, just sing your songs, mate. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, Shut Up and Play the Hits. That very much kind of mm. becomes kind of like, that becomes a big theme with a lot of these bands, like all these bands that have been around for like decades that are still touring. Mm. Um, you very much have that feeling. You, you have that feeling all the time in the crowd um, of, you know, that you just want them to do that. Um, and then, yeah, and sometimes you're like, yeah, like I really like the new album, like play some of those new songs. Um, and it was really interesting when I saw the Joshua Tree tour, That's a tour where they come out on stage and a lot of bands do this now. They just play one of their biggest albums all the way through. Mm -hmm. So they come out on stage, they play Joshua Tree from start to finish uninterrupted. And then at the end they have like the encore is basically like them just playing the hits, um, which is a really interesting way to do it now. I think other bands like, I think Weezer did a tour where like every tour was a different album and every night you would go and just basically see them play an album start to finish um and so i think that's becoming a really big thing now too where it's like there's enough time for bands to go oh this is the 20th 20th anniversary of our album we're going to do a tour and it's just all about that album and it's going to kind of play into that kind of nostalgia cycle of like people showing up to see a band play their favorite album but you're not getting caught in that weird nexus of like shut up and play the hits
1: yeah and the the crowd knows what they're getting in for which is what Mm. they want they want to play the hits yeah interesting Are there any final thoughts you want to say, Dylan?
3: Um, I've got uh, a slightly newfound respect for you too, thanks to you, Cameron. So (laughs) if nothing else, you've achieved that today, mate.
2: I'm just loving that we're at the, like, you know, in terms of the Venn diagram, we've got Batman Forever, we've got Speed Racer, and now (laughs) we've got you two kind of intersecting in this really interesting way. And, you know, I feel like the world would be a better place if we all just kind of brought together... These passions and just let them overlap and and just enjoy it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. what you like, is our passion. What we say in this podcast. Do we? <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. No, of course we. Do. Okay. Yeah. No, no, we say that all the time. That's our that's our catchphrase. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it <Credit> on t shirt. <laughs> is there anything else you want to say, Cameron, before we wrap it up?
2: Um, I, I would just say, you know, when you hear someone mention the free U two album, don't immediately go to, you know, your New glove box compartment full of jokes about, you know, it being forced upon people, you know, give it a shot, have a listen to it. Um, if you don't like it, that's fine. But, um, yeah, I think it's time that, you know, like with a lot of things now that we're looking back on and going, oh, we're wrong about that. Um, I think it's time to kind of let that free U2 album, Songs of Innocence, kind of have its time. Um, and, yeah, thank you so much for bringing me on to defend it. Um, which I will continue to do, and people continue to just write no. <laughs> uh,
1: well, thank you for coming on, Cameron. That's been it's been great. And I think I'm with Dylan. I've got some new respect for you too. And this album in particular, I think I might be able to listen to it with a bit more insight now, which is um, just great.
2: Yeah, and also too, I think if you're going to go back, like you talking about if Bono, if anything did happen to Bono, and we don't want anything to happen to Bono, but okay. I think also if you go back through, like I think – The albums that you think are like the big ones aren't uh, like they're there. But like go back through like I have to say if you're going to go back through my top five, definitely would be go like Unforgettable Fire, Uktung Baby, Zoropa, Joshua Tree, and then I would finish it out with Songs of Innocence. So it's there in the top five. So that's where you need to go if you're um, if you've heard this and you're like. Newfound respect for you too. That's kind of the the running order I reckon you can go back through and just have a good time.
1: Well, there you go, eh? Um, One last passion we have, Cameron, is Christina Ritchie. Have you listened to i Have you watched many of her movies? Because as you might know, we've been doing a bit of a, a deep dive back into her back catalogue. So if you want to find one to watch with us and come back on the show, that'd be great sometime soon.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think, he, you know knowing speed race has already been taken, um, <laughs> I'm definitely down for uh, the one-two of Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values. Mm-hmm. But I definitely, right, think, right. <laughs> I definitely think that um, Adam's Family Values, the uh, the Wednesday Adam stuff in that one with Christina Ricci is, is definitely good. But um, if you decide to do Casper, um, please do not contact me. Oh, oh
1: okay. <laughs> Controversial statement there, Cameron.
2: Oh, no, no. I've got a lot of love for Casper. I just think there's probably people better equipped to talk about um, how that film operates. as kind of like an awakening for a whole generation. Um, oh. uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more going on with that movie than a lot of people realise.
1: <laughs> okay, very interesting. All right, well, you can find Cameron on Twitter and writing for a variety of um Online publications and sometimes on ABC Radio in Melbourne, even though it's not as good as our podcast. <laughs> we'll include a link to your link to your Twitter and everything in our show notes, Cameron. Dylan, is there anything else that we're on socially wise?
3: Uh, mate, I think so. We're on Facebook, surely. Surely, yeah. Twitter, yep. Have to be. Can't not. Uh, Instagram, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, you would. Are. Oh, God. God dang it. That's that's incredible, mate. What about TikTok? Are we there yet?
1: We're not on TikTok yet, but I think maybe for Instagram we should um find that um, McPhisto filter and, and do some pictures for, for the <laughs> gram. Um, yeah, it would be great if you give us a, a like and a follow on the on the socials and a rating and a review in the iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, and tell your mates, go back into the back catalogue of our show, not just YouTube, of you two, us as well. Until next time, I miss you, man.
2: I miss you, man. I miss you, Cameron. I miss you, too.
1: It's even better the second time.
4: Hey,
1: Dylan, I just wanted to say, I have another podcast. You're cheating on me, mate. In some ways, I'm cheating on Sinead, and I only like you with you, so just wanted to let everyone know, um, I always forget to mention it, but I know the podcast, it's a movie review podcast that I do with Sine, who's my partner, and also was on our Paddington episode a few few weeks back, Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to get amongst some really interesting discussions about the latest movies, um, that's the place to be.
5: Welcome to I Only Like You and Movies, the podcast where Lonnie and Sine share all of their thoughts on the latest film and television releases. Most of the time we celebrate films that we love. You need to see this. (laughs) What would you give it, Lon? Five stars? Yeah,
1: definitely. Best movies you've seen in a long, long time.
5: Other times, we have very different opinions. One of the worst films I've ever seen, if not the worst film I've ever seen. Why? It's horrible. It's a good it's movie. It's so bad. No, it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. I don't know how you like this. Join us for some laughs.
1: As a little woman... How dare you. What did you think of the movie? <laughs> yes, I've been thinking about that joke since we saw the movie. Look, I don't want to shame anybody and, you know, you got some feet stuff going on. That's okay. and Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. But, like, maybe you do. You probably do. But here's one thing I'll say about the feet. Yeah. Right? You don't see feet on, t- on TV or screen much, so...
5: Some thought-provoking discussion.
1: And then when it actually gets to that bit, you're like, oh, they're, they're really doing it. They're really basing a whole movie on that on those two lines.
5: Why do they have human boobs and human hands, but a cat face? Why are some of them wearing sneakers? Sine inevitably forgetting the names of films.
1: The best thing about this film is that Sinead definitely knew what it was called when we went to buy the tickets.
5: Three tickets to Annihilation, please.
1: They do make Don't you it's angry. Now, so. it yeah. frogs. Uh, are you thinking of Magnolia?
5: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally, a little impromptu song Parasite, we're gonna go in people's homes, and Parasite, we're gonna have a creepy basement, and Parasite, there's a dog that eats our sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Parasite! It's the best film. Hey! <laughs> I only like you and
4: movies. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.